If you're a quilt buff, then the mention of words like whole cloth, medallion and Baltimore album quilts will have your heart pumping and your eyes glazing over with quilt making pleasure. Each of these quilt making disciplines holds a valued place in that huge quilt making pie, adding to the depth and complexity of this beautiful ancient craft. Each is distinct from the other, each is highly valued and each has an absorbing history, which is why I'm featuring them in this episode of Stitch Safari. So without any further ado, let's probe those fascinating quilt making categories to garner a better understanding of their history, design styles and purpose. Stitch Safari listeners, hold on. This is going to be a trick multiplied by the power of three. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight, we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Kathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. After the last Stitch Safari episode about American pieced quilt blocks, I felt it was time to delve into some basic categories of quilt types or styles to help divide and conquer this richly diverse topic. I think a lot of people just think a quilt's a quilt, but beneath that overall umbrella of terminology are subcategories of quilts that are so expressive, exceptionally creative, reflective of culture and a means of showcasing stitching and embroidery skills. And I believe all those themes apply to these three categories I'm going to describe here. And they're all so diverse. That's what I find so exciting about quilts. The depth of style and technique simply by manipulating fabric with a needle and thread. So let's get started with the whole cloth quilt. The definition for a whole cloth quilt is simply one made from a piece of the same fabric that's been quilted. There's no applique or patchwork involved on a traditional whole cloth quilt. The quilting's the star attraction. And when we think of whole cloth quilts, we tend to think of the style of quilts from Wales, Northern England and the Scottish borders that were most popular during the 19th and 20th centuries that used a solid coloured piece of fabric. 
The actuality was that they were usually constructed of wool or cotton strips of the same fabric pieced to form a large top, since early looms couldn't produce widths of cloth large enough to cover an entire bed. They still, however, comprised the traditional three layers of a top, a filling and a backing. And in this period, the filling could contain either cotton, an old blanket or wool. But the absolute joy and focus for the whole cloth quilt was the intricately hand-stitched quilting designs, often reflecting their origins. For instance, Welsh whole cloth quilts are easily recognised by the inclusion of spiral motifs, paisleys, fans, hearts and leaves. Now, they did use stuffed techniques such as trapunto and cording, techniques closely associated with whole cloth quilting, where certain areas of the design are stuffed or channels are stitched and cords inserted, creating a raised effect. Both these techniques were used in the medieval Tristan quilts. Modern day whole cloth quilts follow the same principles with many now machine stitched using free machine embroidery. Yet a very similar technique called broderie de Marseille where a whole cloth quilt was worked using stuffing techniques of trapunto or corded quilting was popular in France for over 300 years. This beautifully elegant and ever so graceful technique used design imagery that was usually worked by professional needlewomen and that were made into garments and furnishings seducing consumers all over Europe. So here again we see trade coming into play into the world of hand-stitched textiles. During the 17th and 18th centuries, France's Mediterranean port of Marseille bustled with activity, including that of a thriving textile trade, including quilted furnishings, bed covers, bodices and caps. From the last decades of the 1600s, ships sailed from Marseille Harbour laden with thousands of quilted, corded textiles, soaps, spices, almonds, olive oil and wine, returning to ports in Amsterdam, Barcelona, Dublin, Gibraltar, Hamburg, Lisbon, London and Stockholm, helping to disperse the technique of broderie de Marseille. The needlework ateliers of Marseille became the manifestation of expertise with their sound understanding of materials and technique, reforming corded quilting from a crude technique into a refined, elegant and artistic one. Using plain white cloth and white cording, Broderie de Marseille is a form of three-dimensional textile sculpture, highlighting the play of light and shadow across the textile surface, exactly what any quilting is intended to achieve, only more so using these stuffed techniques. This form of all-white corded needlework expressed imagery such as folk legends, heraldic devices, royal monograms, floral wreaths and fruits, symbolising good fortune and fertility when used on wedding quilts.
There are, however, a number of different names attributed to this style of work, such as Provençal quilting, booty, metalassage, or pique de masse, all very confusing to say the least, so I'm sticking with the romantic and easy to pronounce version of broderie de masse. But they were still whole cloth quilts. And as to where the technique originated, we should again go back to the medieval Tristan quilts made in Sicily sometime in the 1300s. Now on to medallion quilts. Medallion quilts were inspired by Indian palampores, hand-painted mordant dyed bed covers made in India uh, precisely for the export market during the 18th and early 19th centuries. Palampore patterns were complex and elaborate, a definite commonality with the medallion-style quilt, and depicted a variety of plants, flowers and animals, including peacocks, elephants and horses in their designs. Popular in the Mughal and Deccan courts, each hand-painted design was unique. In the 1700s, trade was reduced with India and along with high importation costs, palampores became very expensive. So women began replicating that look with an elegant applique technique called brodery purse using patterned printed fabrics. Brodery purse is a French term for Persian embroidery, where elements such as flowers or birds are cut from a pre-printed fabric and used as applique. This was a popular technique in the 17th century and probably travelled to the west from India. Glazed cotton or chintz fabric that was printed with clearly defined separated motives were used, but by the early 1900s chintz fabric became too expensive. Now modern day unglazed cotton fabrics offer a plethora of choice. But with time, medallion quilts used less and less brodery purse and more and more piecing, along with dense, intricate quilting. In simple terms, a medallion quilt consists of a central motive surrounded by multiple borders. They can be pieced, appliqued or embroidered. The central medallion is the focal point of the quilt and the borders uh, become the frames highlighting and supporting the central theme of the overall quilt. American author Ruth Mahler notes that fabric manufacturers saw that quilters wanted printed fabrics to cut and use in medallion quilts, stating that from around 1790, prints on a dark background became fashionable and were often printed in strips ready for the quilt maker to cut out for the borders. Special commemorative panels were also commercially printed to celebrate famous battles, the coronations of kings and queens or the inauguration of presidents and were used as the central medallion as were interesting fabrics such as toiles or tree of life designs. 
American quilt maker, author and designer Ginny Bayer is credited with sparking a revival of the medallion quilt in the 1980s with her book The Art and Technique of Creating Medallion Quilts using lines of her specially designed fabrics which led to elaborately pieced centres surrounded by stunning coordinating borders. And I remember Ginny's quilts and her fabrics well. They were simply outstanding. Pieced stars also featured as a popular central medallion, as did hexagonal mosaic patterns with popular pieced border patterns including squares turned on point, star blocks, nine patch or rows of a variety of small pieced blocks. A noted example of brodery purse used in the central panel, uh, panel of a medallion quilt is on the Rajah quilt made by convict women transported from England to Tasmania in 1841, now housed at the National Gallery of Australia. And this quilt will be one of two that I'll feature in the next episode of Stitch Safari. Pieced medallions offer a multitude of choice, whether symmetrical or asymmetrical, and when well designed, are a feast for the eyes. And now, finally, on to the Baltimore Album Quilt. The Baltimore Album Quilt, also called Friendship or Autograph Quilt, perhaps with slight variations, have all been used to describe the Baltimore Album Quilt, a form of commemorative quilt that began to appear around the 1840s in Baltimore, Maryland in America, among Methodist women who shared the designs as they travelled from one religious service to the next. And these quilts reached their peak as a true art form during a very a brief, brief time span, roughly from around 1845 to 1855. Other references suggest that Baltimore album quilts were inspired by autograph albums, popular among young ladies at that time, that were filled with drawings, inscriptions, watercolours or poems. Some uh, Baltimore album quilts even feature these little red books worked into their designs. And there is a likeness. The Baltimore album quilt has a strong resemblance to the pages of an autograph book, becoming elaborate forms of self-expression and creativity. Some album quilts feature over 40 unique blocks fabricated by individuals, often family or friends, who then arrange them into a grid pattern to create a pleasing design before being stitched to form a whole uh, quilt top. Baltimore was a prosperous, bustling port city at this time, so many of these quilts uh, were often made using new fabrics imported from France or England. Plus, it was home to many silver and furniture craftsmen, so this style of quilt making dovetails perfectly with the decorative arts already well established, uh, established in Baltimore. 
often made by a group of women, although they could be made by individuals. Each block would be inked with the name of the maker, then embroidered. Some also included poems or sketches. There is evidence, however, through the signatures on some of the blocks that men participated in making and stitching Baltimore album blocks as well. And just like the fabric manufacturers who printed designs specifically for broderie purse or commemorative fabrics for medallion quilts, indelible inks appropriate for textiles began to appear on the market, stimulating the popularity of these quilts. So manufacturers obviously learned to become intuitive and responsive to market demands. Baltimore album quilts were worked on a white background incorporating colours of yellows, reds, blues, greens and browns using piecing, applique, reverse applique and embroidery. The complexity of each block demonstrated the skill and taste of each maker. Around this time, the colour Turkey Red, named after the country of Turkey, was perfected to become colour fast, which helps explain why the colours are still so vibrant now in many of the Baltimore album quilts. Prussian blue fabric was also used, plus greens made using a poisonous green dye. The skill level of some of the makers is prodigious though. Some of the blocks include over 300 pieces. Yes, over 300 pieces in one block. I just find that absolutely amazing. But researchers have also noted that many of the applique blocks were stitched with white thread, regardless of the colour of the applique. Today, we match the applique thread with the colour of the applique, not the colour of the background fabric. And for that white thread to be almost invisible is another acknowledgement of the needleworker's skill level. From a construction perspective, researchers have also observed that many of the bowed ribs of the basket blocks were cut on the straight of grain and stitched with tiny stitches and even small tucks. Today, wheat cut on the bias to get the fabric to move gently and sit nicely onto the background fabric. Blocks included uh, applique designs in the form of birds, flowers, landmarks and ships along with images with symbolic, Christian or patriotic meanings. It's been speculated that the floral designs were influenced by German folk art based on folded pap uh, paper patterns creating complex geometric designs uh, or they were based also on china patterns, butter molds and even cookie cutters. There were no pattern books for these designs at that time and these quilts were made for display rather than functionality which is why so many remain in a good state of preservation. But their block designs may have also been influenced by the designs used on chintz fabrics and the women were trying, uh, simply trying to recreate them. Realism was achieved through the use of textured fabrics such as velvets and by using a variety of colour values to create depth and perspective. 
Some of the blocks also showed the makers' political leanings, even though women couldn't vote at this time, along with their support for the temperance movement through the temperance-style blocks, some using the emblem of the Sons of Temperance as well, signalling their faith as women of religious devotion. So within their domestic worlds and religious structures, these women had a voice and openly expressed their views and opinions in the quilts they showed in their homes. Block designs could be purchased from professional designers and <clears throat> and kits became available, some including pre-cut fabrics. Research is still ongoing, but there is evidence that some quilts were displayed in shops such as the dry goods stores. Album quilts were made for a variety of occasions, such as weddings, birthdays, for a special community member or in memory of someone who had recently passed. But each block would have held some form of relevance, such as a quilt made for a soldier may include blocks portraying war or patriotism, or one made for a sea captain might include nautical motives. At least a third of the surviving Baltimore album quilts were made for Methodist ministers who had to move every two years. Album quilts were and are very popular and people are fascinated by them still. When asked why, the responses often reference the warm and friendly thoughts expressed along with the history associated with the quilt. These quilts also serve as historical markers of the period. They tell stories offering a glimpse into the ambitions and aspirations of many middle-class women in Baltimore. And as women weren't even included in the 1850 census, some of their social history is no longer quite so anonymous. The evolution of these quilts coincides with the middle class's growing appreciation for refinement and gentility, emulating the refinement and beauty of quilts from an earlier era. But in 1979, Dr. William Rush Dunton Jr., known as the father of occupational therapy, was among the first inductees into the Quilters Hall of Fame. Why? Because of his dedication helping those with anxiety, depression and other mental health issues that was matched by his passion for textile crafts, especially the Baltimore album quilt style of the mid-19th century. Dr. Dunton implemented a variety of occupations during his time at the Shepherd and Enoch Pratt Hospital, one of which was quilting, where he observed the repetitive nature of quilting as well as the communal aspect of a group working on one quilt encouraged self-expression and creativity, providing unparalleled health benefits for his patients. He also published a book in 1946 entitled Old Quilts, document, uh, documenting many Baltimore album quilts and their associated social history. Why did these quilts have such a short lifespan and seemingly fall out of favour so quickly? 
There's no real answer to that, but they were extremely uh, time-consuming to make. The Civil War was simmering in the background, and one of the drivers and designers of the blocks for this style, Elizabeth Sliver, left Baltimore in 1855 after her husband died. There was also the coming of age of the sewing machine. So while there's no definitive research uh, suggesting any one of the above impacted on the demise of the popularity for Baltimore quilts, collectively they may have done so. So as an entire standalone group, quilts and quilting may have begun for purely practical purposes, forever associating them as craft. But you just have to look at some of the stunning visual compositions, whole cloth, medallion and Baltimore album quilts offer to know that that correlation undervalues the self-expression and creativity these handiworks embody. Made by women with little formal training or education. It's heartwarming to me that now many of these quilts are held in such high esteem as works of high-end art that the history of the maker is being investigated along with the social histories associated with the designs used. What quilts epitomise is the often unseen and forgotten, things like their links with trade, whether that's through importing and exporting fabrics or dyes, the finished stitch products, the attempts towards perfecting technique, the importance of community, linking and spreading ideas, as well as offering friendship and encouragement, and most of all, the links with history and techniques from the past. Through my research for Stitch Safari, I come across so much misinformation, so I do try to ensure that what I offer here is supported information wherever possible. But every now and then I come across the little gems, the sort of information that to me brings information together and humanise it, humanises it, like the stories of people such as Dr. Dunton Jr., who had a passion for Baltimore quilts and incorporated them into his work. And sadly, these beautiful stories are often overlooked. <clears throat> And really quilts and quilting like embroidery is about the people who make, design and create and what they do with that, the progression, the links with historical markers and the endless evolution of style and technique. So if you want to create any of these styles of quilts, just remember all those connections with history of time and place and that's what I find so fascinating. And I hope you do too, because Stitch Safari continues with this theme in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for your time. I love having you here and it's truly appreciated. But wait, there's always more to come in 2022. So do stay tuned and subscribe. Stitch Safari's now reached over 10,500 downloads and that's all thanks to you. It's also been mentioned as one of the 20 best embroidery podcasts of 2021 by Wilp Magazine and listed in the top five textile industry podcasts as at January 2022 by Feedspot. 
and I'm extremely grateful. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to discover and it's all so fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time, as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website. So do head on over. Till the next exciting episode of Stitch Safari and our next inspiring adventure into stitch, embroidery and design. Bye for now.